you have elementary age kiddos or below, we'd love them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. That's happening right outside those doors. Um, also, if you have middle school age kiddos, 5th, 6th, 7th or so in there somewhere, we'd love them to be a part of that time as well, directly back there in the, we our new little backspace. We have an area that that group of folks meets in. And um, Anyway, so it's back there. Well, it feels a little bit like fall. I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, I love this time of year. It's a really fantastic time of, time of year. And so we are excited. We believe it's a, a great time to be part of this, this church community. Um, again, I just want to reiterate, if you're thinking at all about joining us in two weeks on the All Church Retreat, I'd really encourage you to do that. Uh, it is not designed just for families. It is open to singles, older folks, just whoever. The whole idea is that as a church that we get to step out of our kind of normal routine and intentionally kind of develop deeper relationships with each other and with the Lord. It really is an awesome opportunity to take your family or your spouse or just take yourself out of the context of the world for just a little bit and just say, God, I want to get to know the people that I worship with. I want to get to know people that are part of this community. We believe very much kind of that, very strongly, I guess is a better way to say it, that our church community is really developed around this idea of covenant, that um, if you've gone through a new member class, you kind of know what that means, but that we covenant with each other to try and be relationally intentional. And so this all-church retreat really is, in a design, is a design to do that, to take us out of the world for just a little bit, spend time together, spend time with your family, just regroup and engage with the Lord. And so if you're on the fence at all, let me, let me know. If you're thinking, hey, I don't know if we have the resources to pull that off, let me know. We, uh, we've got all kinds of help, and so we want to get as many folks there as we possibly um, can. Community is vitally important. It's actually part of what is, is being reminded to these scattered believers in the series that we're in called to life. So we started about five weeks ago looking at the book of First Peter. The idea behind it really is this thing that we are called to life, this life that we are called to is really challenging. It's hard. We've explored that several weeks in a row. Like life ha- is hard. And, and in the, even in the middle of those difficulties, we are called to some very specific things as followers of Christ. We're called to hope, and we're called to joy, and we're called to purpose. That even in life's most difficult or trying circumstances, God is at work, and God is always in control. Now, First Peter was written to a group of scattered believers all over Asia Minor. These are uh, believers that were scattered for really two purposes. One, because the Romans were kind of pushing Christianity to the fringes, um, and so they would take in some of the leaders and kind of influencers, and they had, they had pushed them out into the world, decentralizing them a little bit from Jerusalem. They were scattered around the area. Also, there were believers that had come to know Christ for the first time on one of the missionary journeys that some of the apostles had been on, and so they were sort of scattered all over the area, but Peter's writing specifically to the group that is gathered or, or scattered, if you will, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And he's writing this letter not to a specific people group, not um, to a specific town or to address a heresy, but he's basically writing them this letter of encouragement. It's really a call to life uh, for them. And it serves two main purposes. One, it serves to remind them that they're not alone. That not only that God is with them, but they have each other. That even though the culture may tell them it's not a Christian culture, or you may only have one or two other believers in your area, that you are still not alone. That the other believers around the area, scattered around the area, even back in Jerusalem, even Peter himself has not forgotten about them, and they are not fighting their battles alone. But what is more so is that they have a God that is for them and with them. And so this letter is meant to encourage them that you're not alone. We've talked a lot about what that meant over the first couple weeks about sort of our loneliness in life's difficult times. But it serves as that purpose, that you are not alone, right? So we, we have that. It also serves as this call to life. To tell them also that this, because the plight you're in does not mean that you can't have a full, abundant, and incredible life right where you are. And so it's this, this call to life. It's this reminder that they're not alone. And it's this letter of intense encouragement and a powerful drawing them into the life that they were called to in Christ. And I think for a lot of us, we need that. We need to be reminded that the things that we walk through in this world are not things that we're alone in. That there are other people that are walking through difficult circumstances or trying times. Or that in your own kind of fears or struggles or even failures, that you're not alone. That God has given us his presence. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's given us this incredible community of believers that we are to walk through life with. And that we are meant for something amazingly beautiful, a glorious 
beautiful, incredible life. Not a life of mediocrity that just kind of gets by, but a true, joy-filled, hope-filled, purpose-driven, amazing life. Those are things that we, we need to hear. So a couple of things in a lot of today's texts uh, that I want to kind of bring to your attention that are going to be really important before we kind of dive in and open up uh, second, or First Peter chapter 2, verse 13 uh, through 18. A couple of things I want to remind you of that are going to be really important for today. So we've been saying this all along, but I'm going to say it again because it's super important. It's a, we have to understand context. So context is important when understanding Scripture. We do not get to just look at Scripture and just pick it out, pieces that we like and don't like, leave those behind, take the ones that apply to us, lift them out of their context and say this is what they mean. We have to deal with Scripture in context, and we have to know its historicity. We have to know kind of what's unfolding in those times. And I've mentioned this multiple times and kind of alluded it to this morning, but persecution at that time was extremely real. The emperor is Nero. I'll tell you a bit more about him in a little bit. But Nero was a really bad dude, and he was awful. And if you've ever read any early Christian history, you would know that Nero is the one that began the Christian persecuted movement in the first century. He's the one that uh, put the Christians into, in, the lo- in, uh, in the arenas and all these sort of horrific things that you've read over the years. That's really at the hands of Nero. And uh, he is emperor, and persecution was very real. And waking up uh, these believers scattered across Asia Minor were living in that, that reality. So persecution was real. It was not a Christian culture. Um, we live in a Christian culture here in Oklahoma City. And the reason I say that, even though I may not feel that way morally, is that you were under no threat, most likely, because of your Christian faith here. In fact, the majority of folks uh, are plenty okay with you going to church on Sunday morning. Um, they're fine with that. In fact, your, your employers don't punish you for that. Your family probably has not ostracized you for that. Uh, you know, in 2013, last time I looked, there were 600, 1,668-ish churches in Oklahoma City. So we live in a very kind of churched culture. Um, that was really not the case, right? You may be one or two or five or ten believers in your entire area or city. Uh, you were a first-generation Christian. Your grandmother was not a believer. This is the first century, right? So it was not a Christian um, culture. So you have these two things that are very strongly at play with each other. And then you've got the idea, too, that the church was really different. Um, It's not what we're doing here. This was not the way the church looked. Uh, The church at that point in time was still small gatherings of people that really got together for two reasons. One, to worship, and two, out of necessity. They got together to share things like this letter that Peter wrote, to talk about it, to encourage one another, to worship the Lord, to break bread. And they got together because they had to. Um, Because in order to live in the culture that they were in, the life they were in, they had to share resources. They had to get together and pool their things together. Uh, They also huddled together for safety um, because they were living in a place where life was hostile to Christians. Now, it's important to keep those things in mind. It's the first thing I want you to remember, okay? The situation and sort of historical context that we're in. The second thing I want you to understand is that uh, these passages that we're going to look at this week and next week are really hard. They're really challenging. They're going to deal with things like submission to the authority of the government. They're going to deal with things like submission to uh, masters and slavery. The things that sometimes we don't want to have to deal with. In fact, the reality is for a lot of us, when we read Scripture, even in our churches when we teach Scripture, we tend to run into these things and then either gloss over them from this really high level or just sort of skip them altogether. Uh, Because we don't want to really have to deal with the complexities, the beautiful complexities that are there. But as my kind of heartbeat and philosophy is, what fun is that? So we're going to kind of get in the nitty-gritty and dirty of, of these things. Um, because Scripture is never false. It is true, and it is right, and it is real. And so when there's things that are hard, we have to get in there and elbow them around and figure out what is God saying, what's the context that we're in, and how does it not only apply to my life, but how do I live it out? And so we're going to be dealing with some of those complexities today. And I need you to understand, too, that as we talk about them, we talk about government, that there's not a political agenda on anything that we speak of. Period. End of story. I'll reiterate that like a thousand times. Um, and I, I say that out of a, a, out of a very specific context. Years ago, I was preaching. This is before I was here. I was preaching. And I, I mentioned a statistic that uh, President Obama had mentioned in a speech that he gave. And that was the exact context, all right? A statistic that Obama had given in a speech that he had said. And then I used that statistic as part of my sermon. Afterwards, I came up. This lady just hugs me. Thank you so much for preaching about President Obama, right? I thought, huh. Afterwards, I get a letter in the mail, handwritten letter. There is no way that you should occupy one of our pulpits. Never have you should ever speak of President Obama. You know, and I thought, huh, this is awesome. Really fun times I'm living in. 
didn't pro-Obama, didn't bad Obama, just a statistic, but people hear what they want to hear. And so what I need you to do is change the filters on your ears. All right, do not listen to what you want to listen to or what you don't want to hear. Because when we're dealing with things like government and submission to those things, you're going to be naturally inclined to hear things that probably aren't there. So focus on that. Okay, so that's the second thing I want you to, to, pay, to pay attention to. The third thing I'm going to mention before we dive into it is this. We're going to try and do this from a little bit different perspective. So instead of taking a 36,000-foot view where we kind of just overview and see it and lift up the big principles... Uh, we're going to try and do this at about 15,000 feet, right? Because I don't want to get on the ground and get hung up in the weeds, which we can really easily do by talking about one specific instance or the exception to whatever the rule is or all those kind of things. It'll make sense in a moment. But we're going to try and cruise at about 15,000 and see the details of what's happening, how that works and how it applies to us and how we live in that without kind of getting caught up and trapped in arguments that probably aren't there, okay? It'll make sense in just a little bit. So that's kind of how we're going to see this, and I need you to do that. So kind of remove those filters, understand our context, and we're going to take a look at it from a little bit different uh, perspective this morning. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open up to, uh, now that you're sufficiently freaked out, we're going to open up to, uh, it's actually not even that bad, but I just get really, I get in this place where I want to make sure that what I'm getting ready to unpack from Scripture, you understand where my heart is and what I'm trying to do, which is just to fillet Scripture open, right, and let God teach your hearts. That's kind of really where we are. Um, and so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to First uh, Peter chapter 2. I was going to do these both these sections today. There's a section on submission to authority and government, and there's a section on submission to, sla- to masters as slaves. And I'd set out really kind of intentionally to do them all, put them together. But about 12.30 last night, while still kind of moving through this, I thought, you know what, we're just done. So uh, we're going to be doing the second part next week. All right, so just keep that in the back of your mind. But we're going to read the whole text today uh, so you can understand it's kind of how they fit together. And then we're going to do the first part today, second part um, next week. So let's take a moment before we open God's Word. We dive in there. We begin to tear it apart a little bit and look into it intricately and see where it fits and applies and how it changes our hearts. Let's just take a moment and let's just pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the word of God, that it is beautiful and that it is complete, that it is true and it is not false. God, we thank you that it is your tool for our hearts and it is your love letter to us. And so, God, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would just teach our hearts God, we ask that you would allow the things that we brought in here, which are, um, have become hindrances at times. A lot of us are sitting here with some fears, with some really active sin, with some really broken relationships, with some really honest anxieties. All of these things, Lord, can be used by the enemy as a deterrent to hear you. And so, God, I ask you to remove them to just kind of core us out a little bit, pull the center section out and just speak to our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning, just to to speak his truth to your heart, whatever it is that you may need to hear. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would speak to them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We say this and do this each week. We want to be a community that's made up of people that care enough about the people around us to pray for them. So pray for those folks. Pray that God would move in their life, even if you don't know them or have never met them. Just pray that God would move in them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we open your word today, that you would teach our hearts, that you instruct us in truth. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so we're in Peter, 1 Peter chapter, one, uh, chapter 2. We have into week 5 of this kind of journey through this text. And remember our context, remember all those things we mentioned. Remember this is a call to life. 
And Peter's going to address some very specific circumstances. I mean, he is talking about things that they are actually living in. These are not pie-in-the-sky kind of ideas like if you run into this. He's talking to believers that are actually living in these circumstances as scattered people living under oppressive regimes, some of which they're enslaved in, right? This is what Peter says, and we'll read all the way down through um, 25 this morning. So submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether by the king or the supreme authorities of his supreme authority, or by the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, and honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit to receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he endured himself to them who judges him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to our sins for the righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So even at first read, right, at first glance, you can see the complexities that we are now standing in. You've got a group of believers that have been scattered all over the area or are from the area that are living in a couple of really specific things. They're living in an oppressive environment, at least oppressive to Christianity. They're living under a, an emperor, Nero, who was a totalitarian. He was brutal and he was evil. And his entire goal, especially towards the end of his reign, was to put to death and end the movement of Christianity. Because you remember the Romans and, and those leaders, they didn't hate Christianity because it was a religion they didn't even hate Christianity because of Jesus. They were actually fine with it. They hated Christianity because Christians believed that there was only one God. And the Romans believed that there were many. And they were okay with whatever your belief was as long as it, yours was one of theirs. And they were also engaging at that point in time with Nero under this idea of emperor worship, where the emperor was one of the gods. And so when you as a believer said, no, there's actually not any other gods, an emperor is not, Caesar is not a god, then that caused some serious problems. And so Nero wanted to essentially wipe them off the face of the earth to end the movement. So they're living in that. They're also living in an environment where as scattered people that have been put in other places, they have been enslaved. Both in the, in the sense of the word of a bond servant where they're now working for someone and in the sense of true real enslavement where they were kind of put under uh, coerced in slavery. Their children were, their families were. They're living in all of those categories. And Peter is addressing very specifically those truths. So the first section we're going to look at this morning is the idea of this submission to authority or to government or the structure of government that you are under. And Peter is very specific about it. And then next week we're going to take a look at this idea of slavery and what submission looks like in that context as believers. But both of these we have to understand in the context of believers in environments of an unbelieving government and unbelieving slaves, uh, slave masters. Kind of goes against um, conventional wisdom, though, if you start thinking about the idea of submission. And most of us don't like the word. The word kind of makes our skin crawl a little bit or makes us feel a little queasy or uneasy, submission. Because for us, in our sort of Western mindset with our kind of my way at all costs, or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or you do whatever you need to do to get ahead. The idea of submission is really pressed into us as an idea of weakness or defeatism. And so most of us don't care for it. We don't care for it in terms of how it's used in the Bible here. We don't care for it how it's used in the, because we have a misunderstanding of it, how it's used in marriage. 
We're actually going to get to that as well in 1 Peter. We don't like the idea because somehow it seems kind of de-empowering. It seems like I'm letting go of what would be my rights or my entitlements because this is the culture that we sort of live in. But like most things, when we see things that way, we're actually not seeing it from a biblical perspective. The biblical perspective of submission is really one of trust. It's one of trusting Jesus. And it's one of sort of a fearless sort of attitude towards that trust. And it's really a beautiful thing. Because rooted in the idea of submission, as we're going to see, is in the idea that, God, I trust who you are. And I'm fearlessly submitting to you first. And only to you. And so it's important to understand that, that Peter's not writing to these believers to submit for the sake of just submitting. He's writing them to submit with purpose. To give their life to those that they are under with a purpose that is much bigger and much more beautiful than just the systems they're sitting in. So let's take a look at those because there's actually three of them that we see right off the bat of reasons why we need to live as followers of Christ into a, with a submissive attitude into the authority and the governmental structure that they are under and that they are living in. And that transfer, transfers over to you and I. It says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether the king as a supreme authority or the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So he says, listen, submit for the Lord's sake to the king, to the supreme authority, the one who's in total in charge, and even to the governors that he sends out, whose job it is to punish those that do wrong and commend that those do right. So he says, listen, as people that are living in these areas, submit for God's sake to whoever's in control. It's hard. This was not an easy system to submit into. You didn't understand it, you didn't believe it, you didn't agree with it, you didn't like it, and it was trying to kill you. And yet Peter says, submit. And the first reason and purpose we see behind this is he says, submit for the Lord's sake. In other words, submit to honor the Lord. And if you miss that section, that little sentence in there, then you miss the entire point. He's not calling believers to submit for the sake of uh, the spirit of humanity or for human sake or to even honor the institution. He says, submit to honor the Lord. The reality is submitting to the authority above us is, a trusting, is trusting in Jesus that he is still absolutely and totally in control even when the things that are around us aren't going our way or don't seem to be for us. Because we think what Peter should be writing is, listen, this is crazy. You fight with all that you have. You punch, you claw, you click, you, you kick, you do whatever you can to overthrow that government and get free. Most of us could get behind that. Seems like what Peter should be saying. But none of that honors the Lord. And so he says, as a, as a believer, in the situation that you're in, for God's sake, submit. And by doing so, you honor him. There's a couple of reasons to understand this. They're complicated, but they're, they're important. So I got a phone call, and I'll kind of leave all the details out of this, from a person that I know that doesn't live here and lives far away, another church I was at years ago, um, after the election in 2016 that was just distraught. Calls me in tears, just sobbing. How could this happen? Um, what are we going to do? You know, we're all going to die. Like, like literally, and I'm not trying to make light of it, like she was deeply broken, sobbing. And she goes, I need you to give me some pastoral wisdom. I don't know how to think about moving forward in light of, you know, this current election. I was kind of caught off guard, right, because we all have our different political leanings or whatever, but I remember how you felt. Um, I wasn't feeling this sort of doom, like the world's going to totally end. You know, may not agree with this or agree with that or do whatever, but, but I didn't feel like the world was going to end. I was kind of caught off guard. She's sobbing. She goes, tell me something I need to hear. And I was like, well, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if you need to hear it or not. <laughs> but here's the reality. Is that God is still God. Like there's never been an establishment of a government upon this earth 
that God did not know about, was not in control over, and was not sovereign over. Even the worst and most horrific things that you can imagine, God has never not been God. He has never not been sovereign. He has never not been in control. So as desperate as you are now does not remove God from his throne of being God. What's important to remember in this entire context is that we've got these two kingdoms at play. We've got the kingdom of heaven, which we are a part of, which he actually tells in chapter 1 that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. We belong to God. We are a separate entity. But we are also living as aliens and strangers in a world that also has a kingdom. And that kingdom has authorities and has rulers. And God is equally in charge and over both. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. He is very much God in both circumstances. He is not going around going, oh my goodness, I can't believe this person was elected. Total surprise to me. God is not surprised. He is fully aware. And to honor God and to submit to one of these kingdoms is to honor God in both of them. And the reality is, is that we submit in total trust and in fearlessness that God is still in control. Doesn't mean, again, that we're going to go down the nuance and the weeds and talk about agreeing with policy and all these kind of things. We're not getting in there. We're talking about bigger pictures of what it means to submit and honor. Because think about the context, right? I want to fight, I want to click, I fight, I want to punch, I want to overthrow, I want to claw. I want freedom for myself. I want something better for me. And Peter says, listen, for the Lord's sake, submit. In other words, he is God over these authorities that are over you, even though it seems crazy and hard. He says, so when you submit to them, you honor God. It doesn't mean you give in to the horrificness of the reign of Nero. It doesn't mean you agree with any of those things. It just means that by honoring God, you're not going to live a life of rebellion. The gospel and rebellion don't actually fit together. Doesn't mean that you don't speak out or have your words or do whatever, but when it boils down to trusting Jesus, I'm going to honor the systems because God is over them. And by doing so, I honor the Lord. We live in both the kingdom of God and as aliens and strangers in this world. And we actually honor God by how we live in those contexts. So we submit for the purpose, first and foremost, of honoring the Lord. What that means is that how you speak and how you live and how you act in whatever system of government, whatever system you're in, whoever is president or not president, whoever is governor or not governor, mayor or not mayor, doesn't change how you should act and live and respond in terms of honoring the Lord. And nobody really wants to hear that or talk about it, but it's just true. There will be a time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, where someone will be elected that you hate. That you don't like, that you can't stand, that you wish wasn't. It's probably happened in the past 12 years. You know, fall into one of these categories somewhere. How we live, how we submit, how we speak, how we draw breath, in those contexts that we don't like actually can be a way to honor the Lord or not. I'll get into this a little bit more in just a minute. So he says, the purpose, right, of submission first and foremost, like anything else, is to honor God. Not to honor yourself, not to free yourself from struggles, not to make life easier for you, but to honor the Lord. He says there's also another purpose. We also submit to bear witness to Christ. Listen to what else he goes on to say. He says this, he says, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, foolish men is an idea that comes out of Psalm 14, and it basically says the, the foolish believe there is no God. So he says, by doing good, by living this way, you silence the talk of those that don't believe in this God that you believe in, which would describe pretty much the entire reign of Nero. They didn't believe that God was the only true God. And he says, by living and doing good and right and submitting, you are actually silencing the talk of ignorant men, people who do not believe that God is who he says he is. In other words, by living in this submission and honoring the Lord, you are bearing witness to the cross of Christ. 
that as they institute and push and do all the things that governments will do and try and silence you and try and kind of ridicule and tear you up and beat you and all those kind of things that these governments were doing, as you live a good and true and submissive life, first to the Lord to honor him, you're going to silence the mouths of people that tell you there is no God. They're going to see Jesus at work in you. They're going to see God in you and how you treat and how you act and how you live. In other words, the way that you live in the context of these struggles really matters because it bears witness to the cross. Now, here's the thing. You've seen this. You've been on social media. You've engaged in some ridiculous political discussion on social media. You've seen people that you once respected or thought you did. You've watched how they speak about people or to people, and you've thought to yourself, what a horrible example of someone who says they love Jesus. Every single one of us has seen it or been a part of it. What Peter's saying is that how you act, live, and submit in these contexts actually bears witness to the cross of Christ. Don't give them reason, right, to fill the air with the, you're judgmental, you're cynical, you're hypocritical, you're awful. Submit. Honor the Lord. And you don't look at that ruler and say, I honor you because you're you. You say, I submit to your authority because God is ultimately reigning over you and I submit to honor him. Even in the wake of you doing the things that I don't think are right, I honor my God and the worlds that he has created and put together by giving you essentially the respect and authority that God has given you for this temporary time. And by doing so, I honor him, and I live like Jesus. Think about Jesus' movements with Pilate's, right? We went through all this in the Gospel of John. Jesus submitted in such a way that silenced the mouths of ignorant men. They couldn't believe that he was silent to all these charges. That he didn't lead a rebellion with clubs and spears and knives and torches. So our submission with purpose honors the Lord, and it bears witness to Christ. The third thing he says is that we also submit for one really key and important reason, or another key and important reason. We submit because we're free. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So what Peter's talking about is not freedom in terms of um, being under a government. He's talking about freedom from sin. You have been set free. We know this from John chapter 8, right? John chapter 8, he's saying, listen, you have been set free from the slavery of sin. And because you have been set free, you are always free. And he who has been set free is free indeed. John chapter 8. Peter knows that as followers of Christ, you have been liberated from sin and death. You have been liberated from unforgiveness, from resentfulness, from hatred, from all of those things that once captured your soul. You have been set free and you are called to live as free people. That as oppressive as things might be, you are liberated from your soul outward and therefore you are free in Christ. So don't see yourself as being oppressed or living in a government that is pressing you down. You have been set free from the only thing that matters. Live as a free person. In other words, let your heart live free. Find joy in the trusting of Jesus. Even in these difficult circumstances, he's saying, find joy in trusting Jesus. Because you're free. You're truly free. And then he gives this little warning. He says, but don't let your freedom be a cover-up for sin. Remember, live as a servant of God. In other words, because you're free doesn't give you the right to sin. In other words, because the oppression that you're under does not give you the right to sin under that oppression. Because the government is pressing you down does not give you the right to fight evil with evil. Never do we see that in Scripture. Just because he did it does not give you the right to do it. Just because they're awful and are terrible and are saying these things does not give you the right to be awful and terrible and say these things. Your freedom does not give you the right or the liberty to then engage in sin in which you have been set free from. In other words, you know, you heard the phrase, you know, we don't fight this with that. 
right? Two rights, two wrongs don't make a right. It's essentially what Peter's saying. He said, yes, you're free. And you very easily could use that freedom as a way of saying, I'm going to repay you for what you have done to me. Or if you're going to fight dirty, I'm going to fight dirty. He said, don't let your freedom be a cover-up for sin. In other words, still live a life that honors the Lord and doesn't engage in sin. Why? Live as a servant of God. In other words, let God fight your battles. Trust that God is big enough to fight for you. Serve him. The servant doesn't fight his battles for his master. The servant does what the master says. And so when God says, just serve me, honor me, bear witness to Christ. And as a follower of Christ, that's what we do. In these crazy and unshakable or, or these shakable and unforeseen times, we bear witness to Christ by honoring God, by submitting to those things around us that are sometimes hard to submit to, and by not fighting evil with evil, but living as a light that shines in the darkness. We bring honor to the Lord. We bear witness to the cross of Christ because we are free to live as lights in this world. The practical side of that is hard. But the reality of it is really powerful. That even in the midst of these things, God will be God. And that trusting him is a fearless activity. That we are called to be drawn into this beautiful, fearless trust of Jesus. God, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you will never be thwarted. I believe you will never be dethroned. I believe that you are active even in the midst of something that I'm having a hard time with. Some point in your life, that person will be elected that you don't care for. And you are going to be living in that system. And Lord, I trust you in the middle of it. And I want my actions to be admirable in the middle of all this. Doesn't mean I don't engage in discussion. Doesn't mean I don't try to go about things the right way. But what it does mean is that I'm going to honor the Lord in how I do it. That I'm not going to give the watching world or those governmental regimes way of looking at me and saying, see, that's what a believer looks like. What a believer looks like is someone who honors the Lord, bears witness to the cross of Christ, and lives in total freedom, total trust in Jesus. And then Peter wraps it up with this little four word kind of four statement gem that's really complicated and hard if, as if that stuff already wasn't. He says this. Here's how you do it, in other words. He said, those three things I just showed you, here's the practical side of it. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So he says, you want to know how you actually live out this submission? I'll give you the four ways you got to imagine, man, it's hard enough hearing this stuff sitting here. But imagine the complexity it was sitting in somewhere in modern-day Turkey or in the middle of Asia Minor, in the middle of a, a place where you've got someone in your life who maybe has already been captured or killed for their belief in Christ, or you feel super alone, and every day the government is just pressing down on you and pressing down on you, waiting for you to make a misstep so they can arrest you or kill you or whatever. Peter goes, you want to know how to live this out? Here's these four things. Show proper respect to everyone. Think about that for a moment. Proper respect to everyone. There's a lot of people in your life and in my life that are really hard to respect. Now we're talking about not just general people, right? We're still under the context of authorities and governments. So let's not deliver that too far, but I think it's very safe to assume that that also means show proper respect to everyone, right? But there are a lot of reasons why we may not be able to respect someone or feel like we can't. But there's something uniquely important here that we have to understand as believers. And that is that we are called to see the world and see humanity the way that God sees the world and sees humanity. That God has breathed life into everybody's lungs. There's no escaping that. He didn't make some of us and not the others. We are all made in his image and created by him. And therefore we are called beloved whether we have been saved yet or not. We are all beautiful and we have names and we have heartbeats and we are created by God. And therefore, as followers of Christ, we are called to see the world that God sees and to see people the way that God sees them and to show proper respect to people. To people. There's never been a time in our history of the world that we have had more opportunity to live in disrespect to each other than we do now with our current social media platforms. 
the, the anonymous activity, the sort of behind-the-closed veil of being able to lambast, belittle, and berate, and bully people is something that we have never seen before. Our kids are waking up to not bullying in the playground, not being on a playground where someone pushes you off the swing and calls you fat or ugly or redhead, which I got a lot, <laughs> right? Or all the freckles on your face, they laugh at you and you go home and your mom goes, they're angel kisses. I'm like, that still sucks. That's almost worse. We're not getting bullied in those categories, right? If you have kids in this day and age, like I do have a senior and an eighth grader, their world is a brutal place online. And people hide and they can throw arrows and darts and spears. And we feel empowered when we do it, like we're making some kind of great point. By lambasting humanity, the humanity in people. And we do it to our leaders. We do it to our governmental people. And maybe they deserve it. Maybe they don't. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. He says, show proper respect to everyone. You know, if you look hard enough as a follower of Christ, there is something in everyone you can respect. Something. Maybe they're a husband or a, a, maybe they're a wife or maybe they're a mama or maybe they're a dad or maybe they love babies or maybe they love dogs or maybe they love this country, whatever it is, there is one thing or something that we can isolate and say, there's something to respect at some level in you because God made you. Now again, we can get caught in the weeds and really talk about the difficulties of horrific dictators over the years, but I'm not trying to get there. What I'm just trying to say is like for the overview part of this is for us to be able to say, how can I live a life that respects people? Even people that are hard. Even that boss that you have that's just brutal. One that has no soul. It says, show proper respect to everyone. How you engage online, how you treat people, especially in the wake of how they treat you, is incredibly important. Remember, this governmental thing in terms of what the believers are living in, they acted first, the government did. They're oppressing them, they're persecuting them. So how the believers respond is what Peter's addressing. He's not saying, put your best foot forward and see what happens. He's saying, when you're treated this way, show proper respect to everyone. It's hard to do, but it's incredibly important. So I'm going to not just take the high road and go silent, but I'm going to attempt to be respectful in the way that I communicate pe with people that I disagree with, politically, socially, biblically, theologically, whatever it is, even the systems of government that are in play that I disagree with policies or things or the way they live or whatever it is, like I'm going to be respectful because Christ calls me to that. And even at my worst, Jesus still loved me. And if he loved me, then he, can, he loves everyone. So I'm going to show proper respect to everyone. Second part, he says, love the brotherhood of believers. This is really, really cool because the most cynical place that most of us live is actually here. I don't think most of us are even as cynical towards our government as we are to other churches. And I'm being really honest. Like, I think we judge other churches more harshly than we judge even the worst things that are happening in our culture. We judge them for their coffee cups or the lack thereof, for their buildings, their rock climbing walls, their smoke machines, their old music, their new music, their whatever they treated you when you came by, for the lack of parking for the elderly, for too much parking for the elderly, for no children's signs, for these children's signs. We laugh and we scoff and we mock and we think, how are they even a church? I hear it constantly. I'm in it. I'm in it. I know it. I understand it. Peter says, listen, love the brotherhood of believers. Like it or not, you are family, brotherhood, family with believers all over this city, regardless what you like or don't like about their communities or think about their communities or what they've built or haven't built, whether it's First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Lutheran or like 195th Life Church or whatever, or whether it's that crazy little group in the shopping center or that last church that's got like three members left but they're holding on to the glorious building. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters in Christ, every single one of them, I don't know about you, but my family's hard. I'm assuming that on some level your family is hard. That you've got a few that you really love. You've got a few that you have to love. 
And you got a crazy uncle that shows up drunk on Thanksgiving who you just wish would go away forever. And you've got that one grandma who's somehow still really racist and awful as a human. And she just gets worse every year. And you got a brother who's whatever. I mean, the reality is family is super complicated. So is church, man. Have you ever looked around you, really, and seen who sits in here? This is everybody else's throwaways, right? These are all the people that nobody could make it to any other church. <laughs> so you love the brotherhood, the family, whether they're next door or whether they're three blocks up the street or whether they're halfway around the world. Peter says, listen, love the brotherhood of believers. In other words, don't get cynical. You need each other now more than ever. If we're going to be in this thing together, then love them well. So he says, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. And we've talked about fearing God a lot. I won't get into it too deep because we've talked about it so much. But fearing God is not about terror. It's not about what keeps you up at night. It's not about being so afraid of God that you can't approach him. Fearing God is really built on two things. It's built on reverence and worship. It's built on a healthy understanding of who you're not in comparison to who God is. That God is holy, majestic, incredibly mighty. That he formed the stars and made the trees and breathed life into your lungs. That he is holy and majestic. And that we have to see in scripture that people's hair turns white. We remove our sandals and we even fall down in his presence. God is majestic and holy and mighty. When you realize who he is and who you're not, right, that, that reverence leads you to one place, truthfully. It leads you to worship. And scripture, when people came face to face with God, it drew them into worship. Fearing God is an understanding of who you are in comparison to who he is. It draws us into a place of worship, even in the most dire of circumstances. Even the most complicated of circumstances, the most hard, difficult places, like where these believers are living. We're going to live in a place of trusting God's authority, of believing that he is totally and completely sovereign, meaning he is in control and there's nothing that happens outside of his power. And then it's going to draw me to worship him. I promise you, worship was not the first thing that these believers always went to in the middle of complicated, difficult, really hard life. But it's a reminder. God is in control and we're drawn to worship him even when life goes completely difficult. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. And then lastly, he says, honor the king. There are all kinds of places in Scripture where we see this. Honoring that king who we may not agree with, right? Joseph does it with Pharaoh. He gets kind of thrown in jail on a bunch of trumped-up charges that he didn't do, and he honors Pharaoh, and he honors the guards, and God uses it to elevate him to a place of prominence that he's going to bring about the entire movement of redemptive history through Joseph. Right? We see uh, the guys do it when they're facing, Daniel knows when they're facing that awful, evil ruler of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Even though they stand in priority to the Lord, they're respectful and honorable to the king. We see the way that David treated King Saul. Even when Saul was trying to kill him, David wouldn't even speak ill will against him because he believed that God had raised him up for that time, even though that time was trying to kill him. He still honored the authority that David had. There's all kinds of places in Scripture where we see that. That just because we don't like Something does not mean that we get to dishonor it. Hard as that is. So we honor the authority. Why? For the sake of the Lord. Because we bear witness to Christ. And because we are totally free. Submission to authority is actually, it's a movement of trusting Jesus. It's not a lay down and die. It's a God you get all honor and glory. And that how Christians live in the world matters. Your words matter. Your actions matter. Your life matters. And it matters to the Lord. And he calls us to live in a certain manner. And all of that is an example of how Christ lived for us. He actually lived in such a perfect manner that we can model our entire lives after him. And that he loved us so much that he died for us as the example of what laying down your own life and agenda means. And when we celebrate this table, this picture of communion, 
we're actually celebrating the modeled life of Christ. That he loved people, humanity, so deeply that he voluntarily gave his life as a sacrifice that if we trust and believe in him, we have eternal life in Jesus. This table is a picture of that incredible, incredible act of ultimately submitting to the authority of God. It's saying, God, not what I desire, but what you desire. In fact, we even see that picture as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Saying, Lord, is there any way to take this cup from me? But not your will, but my will be done. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, that he gathered his disciples, the night that he would be handed over, that everyone would scatter, that he would be put on a sham of a trial, and that he'd be set up to stand before Pontius Pilate the the next day. On that very night, he got together with his disciples and he took this loaf of bread. Well, not this one, but he took a loaf of bread. And he gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take up this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ until he comes again. This morning we'll take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying as you come down to the front or to the back, we'll have two stations, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. The Bible's very specific about the the challenge that it is to examine our heart before we take this meal. To actually go before the Lord and ask God to root out the sin and the frustration and the mediocrity and the failure, to put it to death, to allow Him to wash over us with His grace and mercy and come free, set free, to this table. It is open to all those who profess in faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a denominational table, but it is for those who have placed their hope in Him. Let's pray together as we invite our servers to come forward this morning. God, we ask that you would guard our hearts, that you would guard our minds in Christ Jesus. That as challenging as some of these words are, Lord, as much as they go against our human nature and human spirit, as much as they kind of rally against the things that we would maybe want to say or want to hear, they are no less true and they are no less powerful. But they are modeled for us in Jesus. That in his perfect and sinless life, he modeled for us a life of beautifully holy submission that submitted first to you for, your and your glory, for you and your glory and to the authority of the world so that we might be able to bear witness to who Jesus truly was. That he was the Messiah, the foretold one. That he was the one that came to redeem and rescue the lost. Lord, as we celebrate this meal together, let those truths penetrate our hearts as we follow the example that you set before us through Christ our Savior. Amen. I invite you as we come and share and worship together to come forward or go back and share in that meal together and then remain standing as we close our time in worship.